So hi everyone, it's Gerard here from the Irish Voice and the first of our Irish Voices uh, podcasts. It's a podcast for the Irish in Scotland. And first up, uh, we have Johnny Foley, who is an Irish Voice contributor. But as well as being a contributor to Irish Voice, he's an educator, writer and illustrator, a GA enthusiast and coach, football fanatic and a proud Donegal man. Have I missed anything there, Johnny? <laughs> no, I think, I think that's probably the, the, the longest uh, list of credentials <laughs> I've gone in a long time. So no, I'll take that, Jared. I'll take that. <laughs> so, Johnny, tell us a wee bit about your, your background um, growing up in Donegal. Well, like I say, as you mentioned there, I'm a proud Donegal man. Uh, Letterkenny is my hometown. I'm back living here now for four years after my time in Scotland. And, you know, like, like any typical townie growing up in Donegal, I got up to all the mischief that was on the go at the time, played Gaelic football and soccer from my local clubs, Ballyrean, Bonaghy United, and then St. Unions were my, my Gaelic team. Uh, and went to college then up north into Coleraine uh, when I was 18. And shortly after that there, I, I made the move to Scotland after the whole infamous 2008 crash when there was a the door queues became the busiest thing in Letterkenny so I had to I had to head across the water around that time but yeah yeah very happy childhood a lot of good friends that I still have from here a lot of them as you can imagine have moved away and emigrated themselves now you know Donegal is a county well known throughout history for migration and that's still very true to this day so uh yeah there's not as many people to to ring for a pint nowadays but I suppose that's what happens when you get to my age anyway I suppose and and so, what did you what did you study at university? Uh, university was English history and media studies. Uh, so, the whole kind of love of literature was always there, and I loved the way that you could always combine it with history. This was something that I'd, I'd done. I'd really kind of got to enjoy in secondary school. I will admit, I was a bit of a skiver in my first three or four years in school. Not necessarily the the worst behaved. A few innocent detentions now, but but when I got to about 16, 17, I started to kind of wise up and, you know, you get a bit older and I love the way the teachers there could combine the two subjects. So if you were studying, say, something like, say, the 1916 Rising in history, you'd be doing a poem about it in the English class. It was lovely the way they sort of fused together. I could give more examples, but I think you get the idea. And then when I went to Coleraine, I, I kept those two on as my, my main subjects. And I did media studies for the first year because I've always liked that and like even now, I still dabble in it. I don't do it full time <laughs> like the way you guys do. But no, I, I, English and history were always my main two. And then after Coleraine, I did a master's in Irish history in uh, uh, the University of Ulster, or Ulster University, as it is called now, uh, in McGee in Derry. And that was purely Irish history. So it was just uh, it was a real love of the two and how they could combine together through history, through poetry. Not just Irish history, of course, but that was a big part of it. You know, in terms so, of in terms of the uh, the Irish history, was there any particular focus that you had when you were doing the masters? I think it was. Uh, I I wanted to specialise purely from eighteen hundred up until maybe about the nineteen sixties. I, I didn't really have the same interest in things like Celts and you know uh, stuff from the thirteenth century, medieval times, and penal laws. It was it, they were good, but I just I found stuff from like you know the time of the Act of Union, the development of Irish nationalism, the development of Ulster unionism, things like Home Rule the drive towards 1916, the Angorta as well, of course, sorry, uh, and up until like the Civil War, and then even the knock-on effects into Northern Ireland, up until maybe about the late 1960s, early 1970s or so. So when I say it's a Masters in Irish history, it's, it really only covers about 160 years of Irish history, but uh, that was it there that I wanted to focus on most, because I still felt that's the most relevant to today, far more than the Celts and the Druids and, uh, you know, the missionaries and all that kind of stuff. 
you know, sure. no, no harm to them, no, no harm to the work that those guys did, but you know, a bit more modern, you know. And so take us to your decision to uh, come over to Scotland. I mean, obviously Donegal has got very, very strong links mm. with, with Scotland. So um, was there something like that behind it? Was it going to see Celtic on a regular oh, yeah. basis? <laughs> that was a part of it. I'd been, to, I'd been to Glasgow many times before that. I've, I have family there myself, mainly based around Paisley uh, and East Renfrewshire. East Ren, I think that's a, a difficult word to pronounce when I say it the full way. East Ren will do. But um, yeah, it was around, like I say, 2008. And, you know, the the whole economic crash had kicked in here. And it was very visible. You know, I was I was working in a bar at the time. I had my master's degree. I had my, my honours degree. I had my leaving cert. But, you know, you couldn't get a job. You couldn't even get subbing in a school to get experience. Everything was, your hands were kind of tied, you know. And, and even like working in bars, even that became very quiet because nobody could go out anymore. So hours were being cut all the time. And I thought, well, I need to put this education into action, really. Uh, it was quite difficult to get into places in Ireland because Dublin is so expensive to live in. Even back then, it's got even worse now. Cork, I felt, was just this wee bit too far away. I couldn't get into Galway because I didn't have the Gaelic language um, qualification, which they, they kind of really want down there. And, you know, it's limited spaces and that's that's fair enough. Uh, there was nothing really on offer in the north that time. And so then I thought, well, why not go to Scotland? And, you know, I had family over there, and it was a cousin of mine who suggested it to me. She worked in the admin at the University of the West of Scotland in uh, Ayrshire. So she sent me over the documentation, and I filled it in. She, she was very good, too. Because of her Irish family, she would understand people writing, like, say, leaving cert qualifications and all this kind of stuff. She, she would understand that stuff. So I got into Scotland then. Uh, and started there in 2009 in, uh, in Ayrshire. But... Uh, you know, it, it, it was a, it was a, took a wee bit of time to settle because you didn't have time to enjoy Scotland at the start. You were straight in, living in halls again as if you were 17 or 18. And it was just work, 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 work. You know, the whole teacher training year, it's nonstop, it's nonstop. But uh, no, I ended up staying there then until uh, up until December 2016. So it was a, a long stay in Scotland. It was mainly based in Edinburgh, you know, but the, it started off in the West. Celtic was a big pull factor, I won't lie. <laughs> I was a lifelong fan, so I... I felt as if I was following in the old tradition of Donegal people moving to Scotland. But uh, yeah, that, that was the move there at the time, 2009. And it stay, I stayed there for seven, going on eight years, if, if my maths are, have that right. And yeah. So you started off in Ayrshire. What, what were your early impressions of, of Scotland um, based on based on Ayrshire and then uh, later on based on in Edinburgh? Uh, well, the first place I did a placement was Cumnock, which is, I always kind of knew it as the area where Roundabouts Belshankley came from, this kind of old mining town, which had been kind of lost out to Thatcherism. Um, it was very, it, feel, it felt like a very remote kind of place. And I, I was only new to teacher training at, at that stage and I was thrown in at the deep end. I didn't have a brilliant placement because it was all new to me, you know, and I think they expect that from the first placement. But then um, I got a bit more settled, got a bit more used to the Scottish education system, which was undergoing huge change at the time anyway, because of a curriculum for excellence and all that. But then um, I did two placements in Kilmarnock, and I actually quite liked Kilmarnock. You know, it was a it was a busy wee town. I felt it was quite similar to home. It wasn't that far from Glasgow. If you wanted to go in to Glasgow then on a Friday evening, or you know, even on a Saturday, whatever it was, you know, go up to Celtic Park, whatever. Um, uh, you know, so uh, yeah, it, it was it was a busy year, as I say, in uh, Ayrshire, and I only really saw Kilmarnock and Kilmarnock out of the whole thing of it. We used to go for the odd night in Prestwick. Uh, and that was handy because you could get the airports at that time. You could you could fly from Prestwick to Derry, 
you know, and one abiding memory I do have of as my dad, God rest him, drove me into Derry Airport. I flew to Presswick and I was in my flat in air by the time he got back to Letterkenny from Derry. <laughs> so it showed you it was a it was a very, very short trip, you know, but um it was a good learning experience. It was a year for the books, really, Jared. Um, but uh, you know, I, I enjoy I still have fond memories of it because if I go over to Celtic now, you still go past and you see the signs for air, Prestwick, Troon, uh Kamara. And then I had my cousins just up the road down in Paisley as well. So it was I felt as if it it, it was a busy year, but you know, good friends and good family as well. So it, that made it a lot easier. So it was one year in Ayrshire, and then did you head to Edinburgh straight away, or were you in Glasgow yeah. for a bit? Uh, no, I was. I was pretty much straight to Edinburgh. Then um, they gave us this choice about you fill in your five, your top five uh, places in Scotland you'd like to go, kind of councils if you like. Edinburgh was actually my third one. I think it was. I'd planned to stay on the west coast, but then when you get Edinburgh, you think, well, Edinburgh's a world famous city. It's a lovely city. And they've taken you on, like, geez, that's that's a that's a good one. Um, I'll never forget the. Um, I'd been to Edinburgh before, you know, for lads weekends, and uh, I'd been to Edinburgh Zoo when I was a kid. But I remember, I'll never forget the day I was going over to Edinburgh to meet the guys from my new school at uh, Firhill High School. It was called. But I went to George's Square in Glasgow, got the train from Queen Street, and it was a lovely, lovely summer's day in Glasgow. You know, that sounds hard to imagine, but it was. People eating ice creams out in George Square. It was fantastic. And I got the train across to Edinburgh. And even though it's not that long of a journey, it was absolutely downpouring with the rain, you know, and the grey skies and this kind of stuff. And, you know, you can imagine that against all the kind of old Gothic brickwork of Edinburgh. But the one thing, I, the first thing I saw when I came out of Waverley Station in Edinburgh was uh, all these American tourists who'd been there, you know, to see the castle with their shorts and their bum bags getting absolutely drenched. You know what I mean? So that was a, that was I just kind of, a, that was an amusing start to my time in Edinburgh. But um, Edinburgh then I started in Firhill High School. The news of my father's illness had come through at that stage. He he didn't have long to go. And to this day, I'll always say that that school were very, very supportive of me. Like they knew I was a new teacher learning the trade, but they knew I had stuff going on at home as well. And, you know, dad did pass away in October. Uh, so, you know, they gave me the time off that I needed. And they were just, they were just brilliantly, brilliantly supportive. Even to this day, I still have good contact with them. So they helped me settle very much into to life in Scotland. I had my family in the West and then the, the people I met at work, they became my new family in the east of Scotland. So it was a, a very, very welcoming first few years in Scotland, I must say. They all were, but definitely a good start to it. Yeah. Fantastic. And just in terms of, you know, the Irish diaspora, the Irish community in Edinburgh, what were your kind of um, first interactions with them? I mean, obviously, the, the you know, the Dean Connollys are, are quite well, well known and things like that, but... Um, <laughs> That might not have been your first interaction with the Irish community in Edinburgh. Might have been some. No, I, I think the first was uh, maybe uh, Malone's Bar. <laughs> I think was probably the, <laughs> the first, that's the first place where you meet people, really. Um, yeah, Connolly's were a big part of that, but it was Connolly's probably was still the biggest influence of getting to know the Irish uh, diaspora in Edinburgh. You know, they again a very welcoming crowd, got me in straight away, and I wanted to do something for the club straight away, so I became there public relations officer pretty much from day one so i i, I set up you know, their facebook well i don't i didn't set up their facebook page but it, i kind of got it going and started doing like visual things for them match reports things that they kind of wanted to have done on a regular basis my my previous calling as a part-time sports journalist was a was a big help in that but then of course you know you get into these cycles they appreciate i think that you're doing stuff for them you're not just as a passenger in the club you're actually helping them out now there was a lot more people uh, doing a lot more important work 
at Connolly's rather than just some guy doing the Twitter or doing the Facebook. But every little bit, you know, uh, you know, you know, I couldn't do what the the treasurer or the chairperson did. You know, I, I couldn't take that kind of job. But um, you know, I kind of enjoyed having fun with the social media side of it, and you know, making um, you know, kind of short publications for them and things like that. Because as the years went by, they guys told me that that's how they learned about the club. That's how they learned about Connolly's when they were moving to Edinburgh. But again, too, it was um, the club was a, was a big factor in that. Uh, I'll always have a, a soft spot for them. Um, you know, right from day one, it was a, it was a great connection with them. When I got involved with the club, as you do, you have, you have ups and downs along the way. Of course, you know, if you're late for training or if you <laughs> if you miss a meeting and all that kind of stuff. But again, too, like you know, you you, you meet wonderful people in uh, Edinburgh. You know, Demo Hulin is a is a very near and dear friend of mine. He was a neighbour of mine at the time, um, and Mike Nash. I think he was. He, he, I'd have to put him up there as well. And then my friend Treya and Martin, she's from Belfast, he's from Limerick. You know, the, 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 we, we just had this kind of lovely kind of, you know, it's like when you watch an episode of Friends, Jared, you know, when we were sort of just that yeah. kind of small group of guys and girls. And, you know, it was a nice way thing. Because Edinburgh's not a big city. It was easy to get around and visit people. You know, it's not like London or even Dublin. You know, it was, it was very easy to pop around and socialise and hang out at the weekend and yeah. have fun as well, which we did. <laughs> You think there's a, a real strength of of GE clubs, whether they're in you know Scotland or America or, or back home in Ireland, mm. that it really does create that sense of community and and, and welcoming. Uh, yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, uh, my ex- experience of a migrant club was was Connolly's, um, and the one thing I really liked about them was that they were true to their mission statement that they do take players of all ability. Because at the end of the day, I was a at best, a poor reserve player or a, a junior B player, you know. <laughs> um, but they, they sort of had a, if you wanted to be involved in the club, they had something for everybody, you know. And I, like I say, mine was the media role at the start. And as time, I got involved in coaching roles with the, mainly with the women's team, the ladies team, who went on to become very successful, as I'm sure you've, you've heard about. But they sort of, if you wanted to do something with the club, they, they gave you that chance to excel. You didn't have to be an all-star player. You didn't have to be this kind of guy who came in with a huge reputation from your club or your maybe time playing county minors at home. You were sort of part of you were part of the fabric if you could help out the club. So and it, it wasn't just for Irish people, they were brilliant as well. Like we Canadians, we had Scottish, we had English in that team as well. Or in the club, sorry, I should say. So yeah, it's it's a big factor in making you feel at home and you know, you would socialise and do things together. You'd go out and watch the All Ireland final, you know, even if your county were in it or not, you would arrange a you know, it's quite much the Ulster final, whatever it might be. So they are they are very, very good at that there as well. But again, it's not just for top players only, which I think is very, very important. It's that whole inclusive nature. And I, I had a very good experience of GA abroad, if you like. Let's not gloss over the fact that you were a coach for the ladies team. And <laughs> the ladies team had a, a great deal of success in the, in the recent past where they, they reached the All-Ireland Junior Final. Is that, that right? That was with the Scotland ladies team, yeah. That was the, oh, that was the Scotland ladies team. That was, that was the Scotland, but it, it was it was the the backbone of it was our colonies team, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, we got that was that was a day at Crow Park, yeah. That was, a, you know, usually you were you were setting up cones for a warm up in front of a man and a dog. This time in twenty fifteen, we were doing it at uh, Crow Park, you know, in front of Hill sixteen and the the TV cameras and all that kind of stuff. Now we got well beaten that day. Let's not gloss over that. <laughs> we got well beaten that day. But uh, no, that was the county team, Jerry. Our, our biggest achievement with Connie's ladies was it was at the club level. Um, in 2013, I was actually away for a few months when this happened. But, uh, you know, they got to the All-Ireland Junior Final that year, which was a fantastic achievement. And, you know, many people felt that that was, 
you know, the, the pinnacle of what they got, but they went then from junior to intermediate in 2014. And, you know, they, they upped the gear again, a couple of new players joined in and uh, they went on and won the All-Britain at 2014 and 2015. Uh, which was I was delighted to be a part of it. Demo was the manager of 2014. Alan Ward was the manager of 2015. I was the part of the backroom team. But they were a great, great bunch to be involved with. I must say, you know, they, they, again, they made you, they kept you on your toes. And, uh, you know, they, they you, again, you might have disagreements at training now and again. Of course, that's all part of it. But again, there was a wonderful atmosphere. And it was, it was probably my best experience ever of being involved in a football team. Now, I've been involved with clubs at home. Um, you know, I have great memories of them. But I still think that, 2014 team with the ladies was was probably the best and i'm the first to admit uh jared as well like i became the manager of that club team in 2016 but by that stage i think maybe i outstayed my welcome a wee bit you know the a lot of the players were kind of moving on taking new jobs elsewhere and it was it was hard to keep it afloat they went through i wouldn't say a dip but a period of, they were starting to go through a period of transition but i i was the manager i take responsibility for that you know we still got to an all britain semi-final but it was, it, I think after, you know, getting to a final in 2013, an All-Ireland final, sorry, winning an intermediate 2014, 2015, you can understand the tired, tiredness and fatigue was starting to kick in by, by 2016. But uh, I still keep an eye on them and they seem to be going uh, going very well since. I think they won it again in 2018. They won it back again. And so I was delighted to see that. So you were involved in both uh, the Connolly's ladies and also the, the Scotland ladies as well? Mm-hmm. And well, yeah, it was it was it was pretty much the same team, to be honest. <laughs> very much, by, by about four or five players, it was pretty much the same team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, unfortunately, the Scotland ladies thing didn't really last too long. You know, it, it came along in 2015. You know, we got to play against Louth after beating Derry in uh, in Crow Park. But to be honest, by 2016, it was gone. You know, they, they couldn't maintain it. There was a lot of finance to it, a lot of stuff behind the scenes. The manager couldn't commit. The new guy couldn't commit, and it was there was just too much going on really and um you know people would from the outside might say that getting to crow park was the biggest achievement i don't think it was it was a, the best ground to play in absolutely uh, the best you know changing room facilities and nicest place to do a warm-up but i still think you know the, the the stuff we did at club level especially in 2014 was was still always top the crow park memory believe it or not yeah yeah right about this time when you were when you were involved with Conley's, was there Anything particular that you missed from home? You know, obviously your family, but was, was there anything else that um, I, think, I think the uh, the short journeys to games <laughs> at home was easier. You know, you, you know, you come from Letterkenny, you can play against Letterkenny Gales, you can play against St Mary's, you can play against McCool's, and it's only a, a short journey. Or Glen you know, it's only 70 kilometres out the road. Um, don't get me wrong, I love the, the, the travelling around the country, both Scotland and Britain with the Connolly's Lady teams, but I really found that the year I became a manager, it was very hard to organise, you know, because there was only five teams in Scotland. And, you know, your nearest games was Glasgow, which I know isn't a million miles away, but if you're playing that on a Thursday night after work, it's it's, it's, a, it's a wee bit of a, a wee bit of a torture. Sure. Uh, so I, I, I didn't enjoy the, you know, the thought that you have to go up to Aberdeen just for a league game. You know, <laughs> I thought that was just a bit of a trick, you know, because it takes, what, three and a half hours to get up there and then you do the game and then you come back down and you kind of lose a whole day just for a league game, you know. I don't understand if it was championship, but uh, I think the, uh, the the travelling, as fun as it was sometimes, especially when you won, coming back from Manchester or Liverpool or Birmingham, um, you know, it was long journeys when you came back after you got beat. <laughs> I can tell you that as well, you know. So uh, I think the, the big commutes were uh, something that... Uh, I could have I could have easily swapped if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. 
So we'll move on to one of your other laws, but we'll come back to the sport at some point. Um, sure. you, you've been involved in, in Right Flyers Voice, I think mm -hmm. pretty much since its inception in 2013, doing different things. And you've also, you know, illustrated, um, provided <laughs> illustrations as well. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you called me an illustrator at the start, I was like, I'm a... <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was illustrator, cartoonist, either way, you know, you know. Uh, a doodler. A doodler. I told you I used to skive in school. I was a doodler. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the ones you've done was about um, the, the kind of comedy, uh, writing about the parish. Has mm. that has that went any further? Did you develop that anymore? I know you were looking to. Uh, I, still, I still have, yeah. It's one of those kind of ongoing projects. Basically, in a nutshell, it's a sort of a comedy drama about, you know, life in Donegal, uh, where there's not always much to do, but then people do kind of find a sanctuary in GA clubs. Um, I decided to make it a kind of, a again, like a junior B style of player. I think if you made it about senior level players, it would just be about protein shakes. <laughs> Well, the, the, like I say, the idea was to make it about a junior player. A senior player would be protein shakes. It would be gym regimes. It would be no fun at all. But yeah, it's the whole idea of just a, a youngster from Donegal, you know, right about what, you know, toying with the idea of emigration, especially because we live in this world now where, you know, you, you see people in other parts of the world and their life always looks fantastic. So I, I kind of took this idea of a young fella sitting at a bar counter in Donegal um, just kind of thinking about where he might go next, but at the same time, he still has his involvement with his own local club. It is semi-autobiographical, if that's the right term, <laughs> you know. Uh, and yeah, it is. There is kind of elements of Donegal humour in it, and uh, well, Irish humour, I should say, uh, a bit of seriousness to it as well. How I've done that now, Jared, I will admit, I have procrastinated big time. I start, then I then I start it again. Then I watch a film and think, oh, there's an idea there I could steal. Uh, or then I, I read a play and I think, oh, you know, something like Philadelphia here. I come and think, oh, that's a good idea. I could bring that in too. So I, I've totally overcooked it. But I think I should go with the the old philosophy of keep it simple, stupid. Just get one and just go with it, you know. So at the minute, I've got about eight chapters on the computer. But I, I, I will say it now because I'll stick to it. By the end of the summer, I'll, I'll have 15 chapters done. And I might just stick with that and then move it on. Can I do it like Friday Night Lights? If you want to do a sequel, you can do a sequel then. Just get your first one done and get it out but yeah it, 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 it seemed to get nice enough reviews you know and uh people talking positively about it people looking to find out what happens next the only thing was i didn't know what was going to happen next but yeah it's, it's that it's that whole idea of kind of comedy uh bit of drama at times just about simple things that really i, I noticed myself growing up um in donegal before i moved to scotland you know and you might even have had the uh, the run on your man Rory's stories because that's a lot of what his sketches are. They're all based in the GA, and you know you were you were potentially writing about that before before he came out, and he's had quite a lot of success with that. Yeah, I think I think he owes me a lot of royalties now. But uh, <laughs> now, in fairness, in fairness, I actually met Rory one time in uh, in Edinburgh. He was over on St Patrick's Day, and very nice fellow. But in fairness, Rory probably made his name through kind of GA stuff, you know, the cliches of the, the, the groundsman and the, the junior B player and the senior player and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, but he, he didn't invent those ideas, so I, I wouldn't feel guilty if I stole them. But I have noticed in, in more recent times that he sort of covers a lot of things. He covers soccer as well. He covers, he does do a lot of good work for uh, mental health as well. Um, I don't always find his sketches hilarious, but I do really respect what he does and, you know, how he always kind of supports other communities and clubs as well he's, he's a very very good man who just kind of started off with kind of doing whimsical things about the GA uh the two Johnnies would be another example as well who do it they do it from more of a hurling point of view but uh you know the two Johnnies have their own podcast now about and they cover a lot of things about Irish culture 
whether it's train culture, whether it's teenage discos, uh, they are good for inspiration as well, I must say. And they're very likable lads, I must say, as well. So, yeah, there is kind of a GA subculture in in well, pop culture, maybe in literature. I'm not too sure what you would call it, but but there is a kind of a rise in the last five years of it. And one of your other projects that you're, you're currently working on as well is a play based on the, the Saipan incident. Can you tell us a wee bit more about that? Yeah, that was the, uh, we're coming up to the 20th anniversary of the famous Roy Keane, Mick McCarthy fallout in Saipan. So uh, I think it was during the lockdown last year, I had Roy Keane's autobiography and I had Mick McCarthy's autobiography. And then I had another one by a guy called Paul Howard, who a lot of people will know is the writer of the Russell Card Kelly series, you know, the, the posh Dublin character. But he was a journalist before all that, and he did one basically about just what went on in Saipan. And, you know, I was having a bit of fun with the three books. There was a lockdown on. I got fed up watching bloody Tiger King and The Last Dance. So I thought, right, I'm going to get to the bottom of this Saipan stuff once and for all, you know. So what I did was I just sort of made a script based on what went on in Saipan, what was allegedly said between Roy Keane and Mike McCarthy and even other guys like Jason McAteer and so on. But then what I did was to bring in a kind of a B story, which I actually preferred doing, was two neighbours at war in Dublin, you know, the... The Ireland through and through, true blue Dublin taxi man. Uh, and then the, the Cork fella from next door who has only just suddenly started liking soccer and is purely behind Roy Keane, you know. You know, he was a, a hurling man long before that. And uh, I kind of enjoyed writing that more because it was the whole neighbours at war, which did actually kind of happen at the time in 2002. Um, you know, and it, it kind of reminded me of, you know, writing like a Colin Meany character from The Snapper. You know, and, and Georgie Burgess, you know, <laughs> you know the, the two neighbors arguing over the fence and not speaking and stuff. And what I did was to get the ideas for that was I, I joined like a, an Ireland supporters page on Facebook and I asked people to tell me their memories of it. And some of the stories were hilarious. Like, like people did say that their neighbors wouldn't speak for six months at a time. Another guy told me that he was at a like a neighborhood residence meeting, like a dinner dance night. Again, the row broke out to them, had a big row in front of all the wives and and the funniest one was uh, two guys who were involved with the Eucharist down at the local church, down at the chapel. Um, you know, man, men of love and God and peace who, again, wouldn't speak to each other over Roy Keane and McCarthy, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was good fun writing that there. I, I did that in a screenplay format. I thought there's no point in doing it in a novel form. But I did that purely for my own entertainment and to get the experience of it as well. And it was, uh, it was good fun. Obviously, there's no theatres opening. Well, I don't know if they're open right now, but they certainly weren't open at the time of writing. So, yeah, I, I would flag it along to a, a drama group. And uh, a lady I know who lives in Tyrone has said that she'd love to do it as a school production sometime as well. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But I, the good thing about it was I really enjoyed the the research and the writing process, you know. And because it was 2002, I had to get the the playlist on. So I had Nickelback and Avril Lavigne, <laughs> all, these, all these mad pop groups from that time, you know. <laughs> but it was good. It was good fun. I really enjoyed it. And do we get to hear what side of the, the fence you fall fall on with regards to it? Um, well, I'll just tell you. I, I know it sounds like very much sitting on the fence. I think Keane could have just stayed until the end of the World Cup and then left. <laughs> you know? um, as much as I like Roy Keane, as much as I respected him, there still is that little stigma of his decision to leave. I know some people say he was pushed and so on. But what, what I think what I mean is there, Jared, is I'm not pro-McCarthy. I'm not pro-Keane. I just think it was Ireland going to the World Cup. It was a real, it turned out to be a really missed opportunity because if you ever look back at that World Cup, France went out early, Argentina went out early, early. Uh, Portugal, who had um, been in our qualifying group, they had a very poor World Cup. 
if you look at the teams in the quarterfinals, it's like USA and Mexico, South Korea, you know, teams that I think that we could have done a done a job against. So I can never look at that Spain game in Suwon without without getting a little bit emotional. So uh, I just think Ireland was uh, what should have been the focus there, not Keane, not McCarthy, you know. Sure. The bigger picture, you know. You were talking there about, you know, obviously it's a screenplay and, and you've had different forms of writing. Do you find it easy to switch between them and do you, or do you find some a bit more difficult than others? I think, I, think it, I think it's good to bring on the challenge and have fun with it, really. Because if, if you don't enjoy it and if you find it too difficult, then just don't do it. You know, um, so yeah, you, you kind of feel that you're expanding your wings or broadening your horizons or whatever it might be. If you find yourself that I enjoy doing a screenplay version for a change, then why not? I couldn't see myself doing it all the time. You know, like I know a guy here at home who writes fantastic plays uh, and I, I wouldn't have that kind of love for that the way that he would. I think the site pan will probably be a once-off in terms of screenplays. Uh, and then I kind of like going back to the idea of going back to the novels and going back to the short story structure, I will say. So I don't think it was difficult changing, but I still felt maybe I'll just go back now. I've had fun playing with the neighbours in the Saipan affair, the screenplay guys, but now I'll go back to the, you know, the the descriptions and the metaphors and all that kind of stuff, you know. So uh, not a difficult change, but one that I've tried, but, you know, I'm trying, but I'm not buying it, you get me? Yeah. So we'll dial it back a wee bit to, to the sporting side of things. Um, mm-hmm. And for people who don't know you, you're a, a Celtic and Liverpool fan, as well as mm-hmm. Donegal GA, and obviously, you know, the island football stroke soccer team depending on who's listened to it. Yeah, um, yeah. Fun <laughs> Harps as well, of course. Yeah. I can't forget Fun Harps now. <laughs> Fun Harps. So if Fun we Harps. start if we start just maybe with uh, Celtic, mm. what was your what was your first match? What was your most memorable match? And who were your kind of Celtic heroes, first Celtic heroes? The, f- the first match I was at was far from a classic. It was in March 1998 against Hearts. And you might remember that was the year that Celtic were out to stop 10 in a row. <laughs> Younger listeners might find that hard to imagine, but it was Celtic who were on the charge to stop Tenero that year. And Hearts were actually going very well that year too. They ended up winning the Scottish Cup, but they were they were in the they were in the league race up until maybe about mid-April. So when Celtic played them in March that year, it was a very nervy, kind of cagey game, very scrappy game, I will admit. Um so that was my first game, but it was the first time I'd seen well, I suppose you could call it a full house Celtic park because the the temporary stand was still on the go with what is now the Jockstein stand. So the stadium wasn't fully complete, but it was the closest thing I got to um, a full house at Celtic Park at that time. I had been to Celtic Park before in the days of the jungle, but, uh, just as a, a guest walking around the pitch, you know, there was no game on. But uh, no, the Hearts game was the first one I remember, and uh, I do remember leaving that day thinking, well, if we don't win the league, at least that Hearts win it. <laughs> you know, it, can't, it can't be Rangers, you know. You know if uh, if Jim, Jim Jeffries is over-saluting the Hearts fans at the, at the full-time whistle that day, and uh, I thought, well, if we're not going to win it, you know, let them do it. You know, that was my first game, far from a classic. But Celtic still did go on to win the league, so it was it was okay. You know, uh, most memorable game is this the most memorable game I was at? Yeah, is it most memorable game I was at? That's a that's a tester, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I've, I could say one, and then I could probably regret. I, um, I probably would say the game against Liverpool in two thousand and three. Uh, it was on the run to the. UEFA Cup, and actually no, I'm going to change that. I'm going to change that because I know we're going to come back to that in a minute. The most memorable game I was at was 2001 on the 7th of April when I uh, I basically snuck into Scotland and snuck into Celtic Park because of a ticket. 
which uh, your readers can read about in a recent online edition of the Irish Voice. So, That's yeah. right. Yeah, congrats to Liverpool one. 2001 Celtic were due to play St Mirren on April 7th. And if Celtic won the game, they won the league. It was Martin O'Neill's first season. And uh, there was a mix-up at the, our bus stop in Letterkenny at 4 o'clock in the morning. And I was only about 16, going 17 at the time, you know. And, and uh, I, I won't speak to all of the guy who, who made the mistake, because he, he, he was a good guy and he, he's passed away now since. And, you know, his son might never give me a ticket again <laughs> if I say something bad. But no, no, but uh, but we had a huge fallout, you know, and it was, you know, I remember my dad ringing him and it was a whole fiasco. But basically what I did was, to cut a long story short, was I got picked up by a, a Welsh guy who uh, who was driving a night taxi. He was like, get in the car. He goes, there's another bus that's going to take you. So I hopped on this other bus. I had to hide through security. I had to hide underneath the seats when we were getting on the ferry. Um, you know, and then the bus broke down. So that was another big handling as well. And then when we got to Glasgow, we were just coming up to Celtic Park at the time of the kickoff. And you know, there was a brilliant atmosphere that day because Celtic were knew a win was winning the title. And they were expected to beat St. Mirren. And uh, oh, I remember even like down where, I don't know the name of the area, but you know where that Emirates area yeah, is across? Sure. The park? Uh, that used to be a real kind of wasteland without walls and graffiti on them and rubble and whatnot. And I remember running through that because you could hear the noise of roll with it by Oasis. That was an, a Celtic song at the time. And I remember just charging up myself and my mate and we, we climbed over a wall. We got a footy from these rather nettish looking Glasgow fellas, but we didn't care, you know. Uh, we got on with fake tickets and all this kind of stuff. We had no seats, but I think the cops knew that if we weren't acting Egypt, we were okay. Uh, the game itself, no classic. Uh, Tommy Johnson scored an absolute bundler, but it was brilliant at the final whistle. You know, Celtic had won the league, which was a bit of a rarity back in them days. You know, that was only their second since 1988, and this was 2001. You know, they'd won 98 and then they'd won 2001. So again, not a, not a classic game, but uh, a real classic memory that myself and my friend Alton, who was along with me that day, that we'll, we always share. You know, we always, we always say we've, we've been to better games since, more memorable games and you know, big European games. But uh, we always have fun with that one. Of course, uh, thankfully, we, we didn't have the same drama uh, getting back home. when uh, I think we slept the whole way, but <laughs> we didn't have the same drama with tickets and uh, hiding through checkpoints and all this kind of stuff. What about your favourite your favorite players? Some of your favourite players? Uh, well, I suppose like any kid, you know, the easy one was always the likes of Henrik Larson, but um, yeah, I have to say Packy Bonner as a Donegal man. But one player I really, really enjoyed always watching was Lubo Moravchik. You know, I love the way I, I liked kind of wingers the way that he could score left foot, right foot. He could do the crosses, um, and he could play for an old boy. You know, he could. Uh, his abiding memory, or my abiding memory of him, was you know the two he got at Ibrox in April two thousand and one, lovely sunny day, and Celtic hadn't won at Ibrox for a long time, and he outran. I think it was Fernando Rickson, who's now passed away. Uh, you know, a guy who was maybe ten years younger than him. I'm not too sure. And he was just a real hero of mine because, you know, he just had a wonderful attitude and you could never really tell if he was left-footed, right-footed. And I do remember he uh, he nutmegged Pavel Nedved when Celtic played Juventus the following season and he stuck his tongue out him. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the TV... I, don't, I, I, I give him the wee ras, the raspberry, you know. And uh, I think maybe there was a bit of Slovak and Czech-Republican rivalry there. I don't know. But uh, I'm not sure if the TV cameras picked it up, but it was a brilliant, it was a brilliant thing to see. So, yeah, I think Larson was brilliant. There's a lot of heroes that time. A lot of Petrov was brilliant as well. And even before that, you know, you, you could not but like players like you know Paul McStay and John Collins and these kind of guys. But I, I still think I, I can't say no to Moravchik. I just he just makes the heart bounce that wee bit, you know. 
In terms of Liverpool, you know, maybe Celtic's a bit more uh, understandable for a, for a Donegal man to follow. Where did the Liverpool support come from? Liverpool came from my dad. Uh, like dad was a uh, dad grew up in Sligo. Uh, he was a big Celtic man as well. He knew Sean Fallon very well, who was a uh, Celtic's assistant manager, of course, when they uh, won the European Cup. So Celtic were always a big thing. But I just think Liverpool always kind of tugged at my dad's heartstrings, and uh, I think it was because maybe looking back in the 70s when people in the west of Ireland, particularly in the kind of mid to northwest, not so much the southwest, but the mid to northwest, people up here started to get like BBC and ITV a lot more, you know, so you, you had things like Match of the Day. And I think that's where a lot of Irish fans kind of got their enjoyment of teams like Liverpool or Manchester United or Arsenal. But dads were Liverpool and he was, that was a big football man as well. A big GA man, but a big, a big football man or soccer, whatever way you want to put it. And uh, I think even at that time as well, like Liverpool had a lot of strong Irish players as well, or players of Irish descent. You know, you look at the likes of, like they had three Kennedys in the team, Mark Lawrence and Stevie Highway. And then a couple of years later, you had like, Ronnie Whelan and, and uh, John Aldridge. And, you know, yeah, Liverpool have a, a big history of connection with Ireland as well, just like Glasgow. You know, we had no family there the way we did in Scotland. But I think it, it, it became a big thing with my father. And then, you know, in the, I think it was the late 80s, we finally got a video player, you know, and you could buy these videos at the time, you know, like Liverpool team of the decade. And, you know, they were brilliant to watch. You know, Liverpool in the 1980s were a fantastic side to watch. You know, Ray Houghton and Kenny Dalglish and Alan Hansen and these guys. So, and we were, myself and my brother, we were just young kids at the time. You know, we, I think even there was some nights, mum would go to bed and he would get us up out of bed to go and watch a Liverpool video. And they go, oh, look at John Barnes there, look at through his legs, look at that. Oh, what a Ian Rush, look at that. You know, so there was there was just that kind of lovely memory of it. And I always remember the 2005 final in Istanbul against AC Milan as a real father-son kind of night. You know, yeah, we're both Celtic fans and all that kind of stuff. But Liverpool was a big thing. And, you know, it was the first kind of night that a Liverpool of my generation could celebrate something so big. And, of course, him being from the the older generation, because I remember just before the kickoff, Sky did this kind of montage of you'll never walk alone, but it was with all like the old Liverpool European Cup winning teams of the 70s and 80s, something to get the crowd really going, you know. And it was lovely to see a man of his age, his eyes light up before the 2005 final, and I was getting my own excitement as well. And then if, obviously there was a lot of drama in that game itself, but of course when, when Felix saved the penalty and, you know, there was just a great kind of, embrace moment like my brother was at the game in Istanbul but I still think me and dad had a nice uh, a nice memory that we'll always 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 have so yeah I do follow Celtic more I'm not going to lie Celtic do uh, Celtic around my heart more because of connections and history but Liverpool will always have a sort of strong soft soft ugh, soft spot you know so that's where that came from it wasn't just wasn't just because they're the best you know? did you go Maybe. to Anfield for, for games uh, the other occasion yeah, yeah. Uh, the I was actually pretty late to it. The first one I went to was 2007, uh, back when Benitez was in charge. And Liverpool were, were doing all right that time. You know, Robbie Fowler was back as well. So it was great to see him come on as a sub. And, you know, they, they still had a lot of good players. Like Xavi Alonso was a, was a brilliant player to watch as well. A couple of years later, I went back again and Fernando Torres was playing that time. And I thought he was a, a fantastic player. You know, two goals in stoppage time against Chelsea as well. You know, as much as I enjoyed wins over Man United, I love when they were both beat Chelsea. Yeah. Um, but, but even as well, uh, I went then again, I went a couple more times, but I went last, oh, sorry, well, it was 2019, you know, the year that yeah. Liverpool ended up going on to win the league before the 
the COVID shutdown, that was a game against the Arsenal. And you got to see Mo Salah and Roberto Firmino and these guys. Like Liverpool always do have these heroes that are, are great to watch. But again, because I've always been a, a Beatles fan, it was always nice to go and see Liverpool as a whole, you know, as, as a whole city. You know, as a, you know, the, I never got to the cavern yet, but, uh, you know, I love going around and looking at the, the architecture and the, the rather unique accent that Scousers have as well, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've, had a, I've, had a, I've had a few trips to Anfield as well. I did book a trip to Anfield or to Liverpool in uh, May 2020. But of course, the I, I, I thought that they were going to win the league, <laughs> which they did. But uh, of course, this is before the shutdown and project restart and all that. So uh, the, the trip to Liverpool was uh, changed to Beatles songs at the kitchen table at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and you'll never walk alone, of course. You know? In terms of, uh, you know, Donegal GA, would you be someone who would regularly go and see the county team when you were younger or? Oh yeah, it was it was always a thing, you know. Yeah, especially champ, you know, championship time. You know, Lacoul Park in Balbafe is only twenty minutes drive from my hometown as well. Um, and yeah, like you know, GA, especially when you were younger. Like, I was spoiled when I was younger because you know you had Ireland doing well at Italian ninety, and then you had um, Donegal winning the All Ireland in nineteen ninety two. So there, yeah, there's great great kind of connections, you know. And I think even back in those days, there was brilliant connections with you know players and supporters. Um, they still have it now, but I think back then it was more, you know, you, you know, players who went out for a pint and, you know, back then they were my, my parents' age. But then by the time, you know, I came into my own manhood, if you like, as well. And, you know, like when Donegal won it in 2012, like these guys were my age this time, you know, or some of them, like, like the likes of Murphy was a few years younger and uh, Rory Kavanagh, just a couple of years older than me. These are guys that I just knew for long, long periods of my life. And um, yeah, like, you know, again, they pulled at your heartstrings because, especially in 2012, because when they won the All-Ireland, Donegal was in huge recession at the time as well. And without getting all into the economics of it, it, it brought a huge kind of you know, feeling of home to a lot of people who were in Australia or in America or you know, much further places away than, than London or Liverpool, you know. So, uh, yeah, so you'll always kind of be grateful to what the team do. You know, they, they break your heart at times, but uh, they're always a, a big, big thing as well. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to get a ticket for the game against Derry at the weekend there, and uh, you know that wasn't good for the heart. Now, but it was <laughs> it was lovely to be back at seeing Donegal in a, in the flesh again because obviously we couldn't do it last year. You know, yeah. And was there any particular players that stood out when you were younger watching watching Donegal? Um, probably the usual kind of boys like Manus Boyle, you know, from Dunlow. Um, you know, did, did a big, I always kind of liked Charlie Mulgrew because he was the one letter Kenny man. In the, the kind of earlier teams, there was always this kind of myth. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's true or not, but they always said if you were from north of the gap, Barnsmore Gap, if you're from the northeast of Donegal, you didn't get picked for Donegal back in the, the 80s and the 90s. But I think when Brian McNiff came in, he kind of changed that. Well, it was Brian McNiff's third time, I think, as manager by that stage. But he kind of he kind of bridged that gap and brought uh, county football to a hole. So, yeah, on the field, you would have had heroes like Charlie Mulgrew, Manus Boyle. But I do think I do still think that as a manager, Brian McInniff has to get huge, huge praise for that. You know, he he did really bring the whole county uh, together from a rather kind of unwritten north-south divide that it might have had beforehand. So I have to give him a big shout out now. And we've also we've just finished watching the European Championships, which I'm mm-hmm. shame that Ireland went there this time. Yeah, so we yeah. kind of looked Pro- on. Probably better off here. Probably better off. <laughs> <laughs> But what's been some of your, your favourite memories of, of, of being an Ireland fan? 
Uh, Ireland is probably the earliest memories that I have. I can't say I'm old enough to remember uh, Euro 88. That was, you know, I was only about three or four at that time. But I do remember Italian 90. Um, my brother and my dad had been in a car crash coming back from a, a qualifier against Northern Ireland in 1989. And when, when thankfully, they recovered and got out of hospital. Packy Bonner came and visited us here in the house, you know. Uh, so that was, you know, a lovely sight to see an Ireland player walking up your driveway. You know, and I've, I think I've mentioned that to Packy about 40, 400 times since, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think the 1990 is an easy one to get into. Like, I, I still remember the you know the game against England and, um, you know, when Kevin Sheedy scored. And I still have fond memories of the Romania game because uh, <laughs> I think every kid in Letterkenny that day had a dentist appointment <laughs> you know, when the game went into extra time. All the fathers <laughs> running up to the school to say, oh, the, the, the young fella has a dental appointment. And then they would rush us back to the pub, you know, and, Put you up on the high stool and get you, you know, a, a bottle of mineral and a bag of potatoes. And but I remember when um, Tomofte was stepping up to take the penalty against uh, against Packy. You know, I, I was only about maybe five or six, and I was like, "That's the guy that was on our house. He's going to save this. He's going to save this." And then he did. You know, so uh, yeah, that's that's one of my earliest memories. Uh, Ray Houghton scoring against the Italians in '94 obviously sticks out, and that was a, a goal celebration that I tried to do numerous times. Out in the green <laughs> that whole summer, the the famous roly poly in the the giant stadium. But I do still think that the probably the the best Ireland team uh, was probably the one of the late nineties into the early two thousands. You know, uh, a lot of people forget about that team, Jared. Is aside from the whole Saipan thing. You know, um, there was like I think when they went to that World Cup, and don't forget they were very unlucky not to get to Euro two thousand as well. You know, they they were in a tough group that time and. Couple of late goals just ruined them. They didn't blow that one; it was just unlucky. But by the time they went to Korea and Japan, I think they had something like six Premier League captains in that team, and then I think four or five more went on to become Premier League captains. You look at, you know, uh, Gary Kelly, uh, Mark Kinsler, Matt Hall, and Shea Given, and then it became like Robbie Keane, Damien Duff, Kenny Cunningham, Richard Dunn. Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm probably forgetting a few there, but <clears throat> I always just feel that that was probably the best. Ireland team of the generation, but true as the Ireland narrative always is, it sort of crash landed for a few years. <laughs> you know, there's been wee flashes since. You know, like the Euro 2016 uh, went over Italy in the lakes. But uh, my favourite memory, I think, overall will still be uh, Jason McAteer's goal against Holland. I was at that game in uh, Lansdowne Road. You know, Lansdowne Road, brilliant for atmosphere, real old-fashioned stadium, and even like the Dutch players on show that day. You were looking at. Clavert and Van Hoydonk and Hasselbank and Kaku and Van Bommel, Louis Van Hal on the bench. And, you know, uh, it was just a, it was probably the best atmosphere of a game I was ever at. So that will, that will, uh, for the moment, will be uh, my number one Ireland memory. So if we delve back to your, your time in Scotland, why did you decide to, to move back home? Um, I think there was a lot of things really, Jared. Uh, you know, maybe a, a bit of homesickness did start to kick in around about 2016. Um, where I was working to was a bit of a commute from Edinburgh. It was a good, you know, 45 minutes. I, I didn't have a car at the time, you know, and it was a good 45 minutes to an hour on a bus. And I think I was getting a bit tired of doing that. I could have just got a car, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, um, I felt maybe I'd, I'd done all I could do with Connolly's, you know, as I say, I was manager of the ladies team that year. And I'm always, you know, even though we got to a British semi-final, I felt that, you know, Maybe they needed somebody new at that stage. They needed somebody to shake up new ideas. And, you know, maybe they they'd kind of had enough of me at that stage, you know. Uh, so I felt I brought them as far as I could, really. You know, good memories and great memories of it. But, you know, you kind of know when to, to cut the cord as well. 
And then I kind of felt, well, without comedies, you know, you know, I still have work and that kind of stuff. But then work, I was was becoming a bit of a commute as well. But again, like I say, homesickness had started to come in. It was great going to Edinburgh when you're 25, uh, 24, 25, I think it was. You know, you're the young guy in the city and you're vibrant and it's, you can go out and about on a Saturday. But when you start to hit 31 and 32 and there's younger crowds coming in, you know, to the universities and they're kind of taking over the scene at the weekend, which happens naturally, you start to feel that, you know, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's time to head back because as good as Edinburgh was, I didn't really see myself ever, you know, buying a house there because it was so expensive. Uh, a teaching wage in Edinburgh wasn't fantastic. You would have to move out somewhere somewhere else. And I didn't really have the interest to do that. So I just kind of thought, well, there was a lot of people starting to move away. You know, not that you do exactly what your friends are doing, but 2016 became a kind of a revolving door kind of year. A lot of our kind of network were starting to move on to either back home or to further afield. You know, it wasn't really the same anymore. It didn't have the same fun, didn't have the same vibe. And, you know, you're getting a wee bit older as well. So you still have great fond memories of the city, but you don't want to grow old in it either you know because um you just well maybe it's it's just time for a new chapter you know maybe a new chapter at home maybe it's just time to shake things up and uh i think things had started to improve job wise in ireland at that time as well the days of the you know the 2011 we'll say recession had started to improve by 2016 going into 2017 and uh like i said i just felt it was it was time to, to come home really so i haven't I haven't regretted it you know i miss edinburgh sure but but I, I still wouldn't say I regret the decision uh, at any stage now. Okay, we're going to move on to um, a very specialised question here. I know that you're a, a music fan and a, a bit of a film buff. So can you give me your top five Irish albums and your top five Irish films? Any particular right, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll just go from five to one as I wrote them down. Uh, the one that really came to my mind for number five was No Need to Argue by the Cranberries. Uh, I just felt that one thing about the Cranberries is, is that they, you know, for an Irish band, they weren't afraid to push boundaries. I think when you listen to the Cranberries, they sort of sounded like a bit like, you know, like a, a Nirvana kind of band, you know, like a, like the Inutro album. Like there's parts of some of their songs that could be mistaken for Heart Shaped Box by Nirvana, which for a band from Limerick, you just wouldn't expect, you know. Uh, you know, like I say, they, they had a wonderful wide variety of, of genres and different types of songs, you know, like motivational ones like Dreams, which I know is popular now because of Dairy Girls. Uh, linger and then you know the oh to my family they had a lovely kind of variety they weren't just one trick ponies uh the fourth one then i put down was snow patrol the final straw which was out about 2004 2005 i think i'm not too sure of the exact year mainly because it had good memories of college i was in college in the north at the time as well it was nice to hear a band who had your kind of accent going well in the charts and i think one of them actually got married to monica from friends so it inspired hope for a lot of us as well uh, i've never seen them live but um, I've never seen them live, but they, they would strike me as a band that would be very good live, you know, with the, some of their songs to engage the crowd. The third one I wrote down, this one might raise a few eyebrows, and that's Goldstone Shave. You know, a very famous Donegal kind of trad rock band. Their album was Goldstone Shave as well. It was uh, self-explanatory or self-titled. But the one thing about them is, yeah, they're most famous for the old, oh, Las Vegas in the hills of Donegal. But if you ever go beyond that, they do actually have wonderful songs, you know, about like, you know, again, about love or about tragedy or about even the, the evictions in Derry Bay. You know, they have wonderful historical songs. And Pat Gallagher is a he's wonderful kind of flow of lyrics as well. So I think there's there's a lot more to that band than just the hills of Donegal song, you know. 
Uh, I'm staying with Donegal, unsurprisingly, for the second one. And I've kind of cheated a wee bit here, Jared. I've just put down the best of Clannet. Um, <laughs> the best of them, do you know what I mean? Because the word unique gets thrown around, around quite a lot. But I think that when you hear a Clannet song, you know it's a Clannet song because of its kind of Celtic, kind of mystical, quite scary and haunting as well, I must say, you know. Uh, and it has done wonders for the Irish language as well. Not that I'm a huge gaeler myself, but I can appreciate what they do. And they do say that Clannet are probably appreciated more outside of Ireland than they are here, you know. Um, you know, places like America or even across Europe, wherever. But like I say, I, I actually don't know the names of a lot of Clannet songs because I find when you put them on the earphones, you just let it play. And there's no lyrics that let you know that this is the name of the song. So you just it's just the music of it, really, that I find very... Um, very easy to listen to as well, you know. And the, the one I put at number one was, and this might raise a few eyebrows, it's a U2 album, but it's All You Can't Leave Behind, which came out around the year 2000. And uh, yeah, I do admit there is better U2 songs, and there is, U2 were probably more in their heyday back in the 1980s. In fact, there's no probably about that. But I'll always have fond memories of All You Can't Leave Behind, really, because, you know, it was the time of the Elevation Tour. I was about 16, 17 at the time, and you know, aside from sneaking into Celtic Park, I got to go and see them live at Slane Castle, which was the news story of the time, you know, who, who had tickets for Slane Castle. And, you know, you, you'd love the songs on the album too, like ones like In A Little While, which a lot of people don't even know because it wasn't a single. And yeah, they know the catchy ones like Beautiful Day and, and uh, uh, Elevation as well. Sorry, <laughs> I couldn't think of the name of it there. But yeah, they, they would probably be in the top five. Honourable mentions to things like The Pogues, Thin Lizzy, even The Coors. I've always quite liked them. They're easy to look at as well. So, yeah, I would go with uh, the Cranberry Snow Patrol, Goldstone Shave, Clannet, two Donegal ones, and then a, a U2 one, which, again, probably not their best album, but just one of good personal memories, you know? So that's my uh, that's my music fix, you know? <laughs> Are you looking for the films now, was it? Or? Uh, yeah, in terms, a, of, in terms of films. films. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was going to get a grilling for some of them Donegal ones, but <laughs> no, no, at all. You keep it rolling. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. Uh, the films again, not really in any particular order, but a lot of these are kind of cliched ones. But uh, I'll go with number five. Work my way down. I still like the one that shakes the barley. It's a very, very strong Irish film. You know, it's got that wonderful balanced perspective for somebody who studied history of the Civil War. You know, there's no goodies and there's no baddies. You know, it's that wonderful kind of how war can be tough emotionally on on anybody you know it's not always the like these war films of the 1950s shall we say where there's always a hero you know uh the fourth one then probably cliche as well is the field um you know the one with richard harris and sean bean but, you know again it, it delves into that whole kind of theme of obsession and regret and it, it, was, it was nice to see an irish rural film that doesn't deal with fiddle dee and fiddle da and arabagara it was the real kind of problems of life in rural Ireland as well. Historically, you know, my geek factor comes out, you know, a lot of it is based in the history of the land league and the importance of owning your own land and buying your own land, which I think did inspire John B. Keane to, to write the original play. But again, the fact that it's, it's you know, it's, it's a really kind of hard-hitting uh, kind of drama in its own right. Uh, the third one I put down was, you might remember this from the 1990s, is Into the West. Uh, the two young lads... With the horse, you know, and again, very, very well-made film as well. Like when I watch films, I love camera angles and music and all that kind of stuff. And Into the West is has it's that lovely blend of Irish folklore, a little bit of links with the old famous kind of Western films, of course, 
lovely bits of comedy into it. But it also brings in quite bravely, you know, what it's like to be living in tenement flats or <clears throat> in Dublin or, you know, the discrimination against travellers or even corrupt police as well. You know, it, it, it's not afraid to shy away from serious things that go on in society as well. But yet it does it in a way that all the family can enjoy as well. Uh, second one I put down was, again, this one might raise a few eyebrows, was Michael Collins. Um, you know, it's yeah, it, it does take a few uh, historical inaccuracies at times. Some people have said it's a bit Hollywood because Julia Roberts is in it. But overall, you know, in terms of entertainment, because it's, it's not a documentary at the end of the day, it's, a, it's, 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 it's there for entertainment. It's probably the best Irish cast that you'll ever get in a single film. You know, you get Aidan Quinn, Liam Neeson, Stephen Ray. Um, uh, Sean McGinley even has a, a small part in it as well. But uh, again, even the way that the, the work that they did, I feel on the sets, you know, like around Dublin when the Civil War breaks out are brilliantly done. And um, again, I think that the score for the film is brilliant as well. You know, I don't know the names of any of the songs. It's probably just called Michael's Theme or something. But it's wonderful, uh, you know, kind of all around audio visual entertainment. And, you know, yeah, it has its elements of humour. It does. I don't think it's as inaccurate as people make out, but it is what it is. And going on at number one, uh, is the commitment which uh, anybody who enjoys the Roddy Doyle Barrytown trilogy will enjoy this one. I'll give honorable mentions here to the likes of The Snapper and The Van, all part of the same kind of series, which are brilliant and brilliant books as well, I must say. But uh, The Commitments uh, for me is my personal favorite of them all. You know, and I always, think, I always think it's the first of its kind in a way because, again, you think Irish films were always this kind of Darby O'Gill and the little people kind of thing before that. This was the first one that saw, showed, you know, what it was like, again, living in recession and in Dublin, what real inner city life was done. But I love even the small parts in the film, apart from the music. Now, the music itself is fantastic. You know, uh, it's brilliantly, brilliantly done. It's very, you know, again, it's not your usual music that you associate with an Irish film, you know, try a little tenderness and all this kind of stuff at the dark end of the street. But I, I just love the little things, like, say, when your man pulls up in the, in the Volkswagen van, and he's got pictures of Paul McGrath, Andy Townsend, Jack Chart, and Pat Barr on the back of his windscreen. And like, you know, they don't even make a big fuss of it. I just love these kind of little hints that they bring about how Irish the film is. It is. And it's all, you know, proper Irish actors as well. It's not Americans doing Irish accents either. They don't hold back on their accent. Uh, they don't hold back on their, you know, kind of foul language at times as well. But it, it does kind of strike a chord with people who lived in tough times, were Irish, and just had dreams of, of going further afield, you know as Jimmy interviews himself <laughs> nonstop uh, in the bath and so on. You know, so it was a great, great, great film to watch, I think so. You know, so that would be my, my top five films and my top five uh, albums of an Irish one, Jerry. That's good. That's good. good list. Uh, I think most people have seen those films and enjoyed them, I would say. Um, definitely. Given that you are a, a proud Donegal man, as we've said, could you would you give a, a few recommends? If somebody's going to Donegal, what are some of the things they should see when they go there in the county? Uh, well, <laughs> I feel like I'm working for the tourist board now for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like well, obviously I, I'm going to be biased first and say like, you know, I'm from Letterkenny, and you know, Letterkenny is it's it's a good kind of place to set up a base in Donegal because it is pretty central to the county. You know, when it's got all your nightclubs and it's got all your hotels and kind of town life. You know, and it's not too big of a town either. It's just, you know, it's like Goldilocks. It's not too big, not too little. It's just right. But I, I do think that there are a lot of places to explore in Donegal, which a lot of people don't know about. Uh, like only last year, this waterfall 
came big on social media, <laughs> which nobody knew about at all. I can't even pronounce the name of the place. Okay, I think it's out towards Ardra uh, or that kind of west on the Gold direction. Uh, maybe you can, you can put it up in the description when we find it, the name of it. But places out by like the Bloody Foreland, uh, I think they're lovely to look at. I think Guidor is still lovely as well. You know, there's that you know the beach there with the boat, the kind of shipwreck on it as well. It's all very, it's very kind of real Ireland, I find, out in those directions. I will admit, as a Donegal person, I've never been to Schlieve League. I always see these pictures of these, uh, you know, highest sea cliffs in Europe, and they look fantastic, but I've never actually been there. Typical townie, Jared, you know. <laughs> it's, a, it's two hours away. I'm not going to, that, that'll take too long, you know. But, uh, you know, those are the kind of places you can go to. But I think the best thing to do with Donegal is, is to really just sort of go off the beaten track, because you're not going to get lost. But you could find something that you just don't expect at all. Like again, like I mentioned, that waterfall. For years, people went to Downing's Beach, but only about in the last three or four years, they discovered a beach just across the bay from it, which is absolutely lovely to look at. And you know, they've put a boardwalk down to it now as well. So that's in Downing's, if anybody wants to go there. Um, so yeah, I think the best thing is to not have too much of a stringent agenda if you do come here, because if you do, you get bolted down. You know what I mean? I would just say. You know, go out and have a look at it. Um, like there's a, a guy I know called James O'Donnell, who has just started doing photography of himself and his dog, called Iggy, A G G A. You know, you, you get them on all social media, and he's not—he doesn't work for like Wild Atlantic Way or Donegal Tourism or Board Fallshire. It's just him out walking his dog, and he is—he's done fantastic work. And people going, "Wow, is that what your place looks like?" And I must go there, and I must go there, and you know, so a man walking his dog <laughs> could do more for this. Uh, this local tourism than I ever could because I think when people come to Ireland they, they get sucked into Dublin um, and or even Galway which are both brilliant but they're not cheap you know and uh, you know Galway was always a bit more relaxed than Dublin but even they've started to get a bit cocky in their prices as well but you know I think if you came to Donegal you, you just come with an open mind and the best thing to do is not over plan you know if that's I, I don't want to sound like I'm copping out there but I think if you if you have an open mind you think right well we'll just go and explore I think the kids would love that kind of thing as well, you know. So uh, loads of stuff to find them. Loads of stuff to do. And the most important question, where is your favourite place for a pint, Donegal? Oh, Jesus! <laughs> if, if I don't say I'm a local pub, they could burn me. Uh, to be honest, with, with the whole lockdown, I've kind of getting out for a pint is a bit of a rarity <laughs> nowadays. But I will say, like, obviously, you know, I have two or three places in Letterkenny that I like popping into. You know, I know the, the people who own them, so I like to support local businesses there. But because of the view from it um, and because it's such a rarity to get to it, I would say the Harbour Bar in Downings. Um, I, I, I vaguely know the guy that owns it, so I'm not advertising him. I think Martin, I think his name is. But he's got this lovely view from outside the front of the bay over Downings that I mentioned there as well. And, you know, if, if you saw that sort of view in France, you would be expecting to pay probably 15 quid for a pint. You know, you go into Martin. He still charges you the same one, you know, and if you get on a good day, just sit outside, there's no priority, no VIP, nothing like that there at all. It's just the kind of natural way. And the fact that maybe I only get to go to his place maybe once a year, if I'm lucky, <laughs> especially with lockdowns, that kind of stuff. That's why I always, it's one of those places that you find you have to take out your phone and take a photograph of your paint, to, your paint again, or whatever, and look out over the bay as well. You know? So yeah, you, you like to support the guys in town, like Stephen at McGinley's and Kevin at Blake's or the, 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 the local at the Swillian, but um, for somebody who doesn't really go for paints as much as I used to, which I was guilty of in the past, I would say uh, the Harbour Bar in Downings would be uh, the nicest place for that. You know, lo lovely locals and regulars too. Magic. 
Um, and just before we finish up, what, the reason that we we did this podcast together is because you've got your own podcast. So I guess <laughs> it was a case of, the, you know, the partially sighted leading the blind. Um, <laughs> so, Johnny, tell us a wee bit about your, your podcast and, and give it a wee plug. Oh, well, yeah. Cheers. Cheers for the free ad. Cheers. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I started up one called uh, The Armchair Fanatic, which is a purely football podcast. Um, and what we do is we try and get guests on as much as we can who have a specialised topic in uh, in a certain topic of football. You know, like, for example, I had Donica Galvin on a few weeks ago, a guy who I came to know in Edinburgh, and he talked purely about Man United winning the Cup Winners' Cup in 1991. Then we had Paul Highland, who also lives in Edinburgh, a guy from Cork, who talked about his involvement as a commentator with the Homeless World Cup. Then we talked with Packy Bonner on one time as well, chatting about... Well, you know what I liked about Packy was... Um, you know, he wasn't afraid to criticise, you know, things like Celtic in Ireland as well. So it was good to hear from his his point of view. He wasn't controversial, but he wasn't all kissy-kissy either, you know. And then uh, I had a guy as well talking about the Yugoslavian team, the best team that never was, you know, because of their uh, abandonment of a nation in the 1990s. And then last week we had Connor on who talked about fan culture in Europe. So like I say, it's, it's anybody who's got a kind of a particular interest in a lesser known topic of football who can come on and chat about it. We always like to take a little bit of a media angle. You know, it's good if you can reference a book that you've read on this topic, maybe a, a vlog or even a YouTube video or a documentary or whatever, because we love kind of bringing in the media angle of the whole thing as well. So, yeah, you're not going to get the stuff like latest transfer news and gossip. That stuff is done to death as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I like it in people on who say, you know, I have a guy who wants to talk about the Soviet Union team, which now no longer exists either. So I thought, yeah, that, that could be good. Another guy who's traveled to... He's from, he's from, he's a Northern Ireland fan and he's traveled to some of the most bonkers remote places to watch football that we could never even imagine. And I thought, well, yep, <laughs> I can get him on. He can understand my accent too. So that's good, you know? So yeah, the, the armchair fanatic is purely for lighthearted kind of football stuff, you know, where you're welcome to come on and chat about your own interest in a, probably a lesser known topic of football, you know? And you've got a wee Twitter handle where you put the links up on. What's that one? I do. Yeah. That's just, just at armchair fanatic. Uh, just at, I'm, I'm still not really used to Twitter to be honest you know it's where it only came out last week <laughs> um, but yeah I just put up there and let people know about podcasts and anything I do share on the, the Fanatic uh, Twitter page it's usually just kind of lighthearted, fun stuff I don't get into anything controversial or anything that would uh, be upsetting which can happen on social media day, media nowadays it's really just kind of you know, fun football stuff really you know so it's on there and then the podcast go up there and last but not least, what are your predictions for Celtic Liverpool and Donegal this year? I think Celtic can only get better. Um, you know, obviously, bad dip last year. I think that had been common, really. I think that it, there had been a lot of players who maybe stayed on too long, maybe a few coaches <laughs> who maybe stayed on too long. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's, it's not right to say that. But I just, um, I think looking ahead, instead of looking backwards, it's good to have Angie. <laughs> I have trouble pronouncing his second name now, to be honest. But it's good to see a new a new guy come in with new ideas, and there's already been a couple of new players brought in. You know, the guy from Sheffield Wednesday and the likes already. Because um, I don't think Rangers were that Rangers were good last year, but they weren't that good. Do you know what I mean? I think Celtic made them look a lot better at times. I think they will put up a, a bit more fight. Having fans back at the stadium will be a big, big thing. That is a huge thing, no matter what anybody says about it. So yeah, I think um, you know I, I can understand if Celtic don't win the league next year. I'd like if they did, but if they didn't, if there's as long as there's a bigger, as long as there's a sign of progress, I think that there has to be the priority for now. A good positive sign as well. I'd love to see Celtic 
improve more in Europe, but we'll see how that goes. Liverpool, I think, uh, I think Liverpool will be a lot better this year than uh, what they were last year. And they lost that was it six, seven games in a row around February, March, April. <laughs> there was a there was a long stretch there. But yeah, you can't forget too that in the in the last I think it was I think they won something like eight and drew two of the last ten games. Even the goalkeeper got in on the goals there too. But I think last year was a very kind of messy season, Jared. You know the way the games were just piled on top of each other and it was two, three a week. I mean, like you would do your fancy football team on a Thursday and you'd have a, a new game on the Friday. You know, it was it was very very. It's no wonder that Man City won it the way that they did. You know, Chelsea had a terrible run as well in October. You know, with I think they lost five games. Lampard's gone. They end up winning the European Cup. So like Man City's depth, it's understandable that they won the league. Liverpool, uh, I think Liverpool will be better again. I think, Chelsea, but I think Chelsea will get better. And you know, we'll, we'll see how United go. United are always kind of interesting to see if they're going to improve as much as their fans say they're going to improve. But I do think Liverpool will be up top two or three anyway. Um, Donegal. Uh, well, we're still going okay in Ulster. We had a lucky enough win against Derry on Sunday, you know, and we've got uh, Tyrone this coming Sunday, our old neighbours. Uh, it's never an easy game against them. There's always a wee bit of niggle to that one. Uh, I think if we can win that one, we should hopefully be okay to go on and win Ulster. But you look back to last year, and I think we were all guilty of it. I think when we got to the Ulster final last year and got up against Cavan, we thought that game was over before it was played, and we ended up losing it. So, you know, we have to learn that. We were the underdog for a long time, and now we have to, if we're going to be a favourite, well, then we have to respect that a bit more. But I do think the way the GAA is going, like Dublin, and even Mayo and Kerry, they, they are miles ahead of everybody else, you know, in Dublin especially. So I do think that there is a bigger emphasis on if you win your provincial title. Not that it was ever looked down upon in Ulster before. I think we always really appreciated Ulster titles. You know, maybe it's not the same in Connacht or in, in Munster or even Leinster, but... But I think uh, if we do win it, we should really enjoy it because nowadays the way it's gone with Dublin and the likes, that's probably as far as you're going to go. You know, so uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Celtic and Liverpool, I think, will improve. I have high hopes for that. Day. I really, really do. And uh, Donegal, big game on Sundays, but I don't, uh, I'm not going to talk about an Ulster final before uh, before a Tyrone game. That would just be a, that would just be a kiss of death thing to do. You know, and I get slagged for it big time. <laughs> Johnny, thanks very much for your time um, and thanks for being Thank on the, the very first Irish Voices podcast. Um, you can follow us on social media, uh, on Twitter at the Irish Voice UK. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash the Irish Voice. And you can also check our website for news, features and comment, www.theirishvoice.com. Johnny, thanks once again. Thanks very much, sir. Thanks for having me and all the best. Thank you.